I found this great story that there once was this old woman who was bitten by a dog. The authorities tested the dog and discovered it had rabies. When the doctor gave the news and told her that she'd have to begin treatments immediately, she immediately pulled out a piece of paper from her purse and began writing on it. The doctor, assuming that she was writing on her will, said to her, Now, it's not that bad. You don't have to write out a will. We can treat this. The woman replied rather sharply, A will? Are you kidding me? I'm writing out a list of everyone I plan to bite. (laughs) Today, the scriptures have led us to talk about anger. Anger is a real issue in each of our lives. Some of us in our anger blow up. Some of us in our anger clam up. Some of us give the silent treatment. Some of us can be anything but silent. Anger is a feeling. It's an emotion that we all have, that we all share. The Bible talks about God being angry, about Jesus being angry. Anger as an energized emotion is not wrong in and of itself. It's not wrong to feel angry. Anger becomes wrong in how we express our energized emotion. There is a righteous anger. An anger against sin. Have you ever sat, maybe in a time of prayer, maybe in a time of communion, and have gotten angry? Angry at the power and the devastation of sin in your life and others' lives. That's an anger that energizes us towards God. That's an anger that energizes us towards right living, towards obedience, towards worship. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. It is possible to be angry and not sin. The energized anger, uh, emotion of anger can actually propel us towards Christ. But if we're honest with ourselves, right, for the most part, you know, we allow anger to well up inside of us and to come out in sinful ways. I think it's fair to say that we much more often have unrighteous, selfish, hurtful anger. That's the kind of anger that Jesus is talking about today in our passage. Please open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5. As we continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount, we come to Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put into prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Father, we have a simple earnest prayer. That your word and your truth 
as spoken by your son, Jesus Christ, would challenge us and convict us in your spirit, would move in us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a powerful passage, these words of Jesus. Before we jump into the specifics, let's look at some background, some principles, thoughts behind the message. It's important to note that this is the start of a list of six different specific areas where Jesus will be comparing his teaching to that of the Pharisees. Six times at the beginning of each of these six teachings, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, Matthew 5, 21 and 27 and 31 and 33 and 38 and 43. What's going on here? Is somehow Jesus kind of dismissing the Old Testament law and making up his own new one? Some have wrongly said that that's exactly what Jesus is doing. One commentator wrote, to contrast the teachings of Jesus with the law in this way is a mistake. It does injustice to what Jesus actually says in these verses, and it does a grave injustice to the law of God. So let's look at three specific reasons why we know that Jesus is not dismissing the Old Testament law. First, from what we preached about a few weeks ago in verses 17 and 18 in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus said he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He did not come to dissolve the law of its meaning, but instead he came to reveal the true intentions of the Old Testament. Jesus was not taking away from the law, nor was he adding to it. He was fulfilling its original and deepest intent and meaning. Jesus is not pitting himself against the law, He is not in any way opposing the law, but rather he, as the one with true authority, has come to fulfill the law. Second is that issue of authority. Jesus is clearly contrasting not just the content, but he's also contrasting between the people who say it. Others say this, but I say. When Jesus said I say, he added the first person singular pronoun for emphasis. So to woodenly translate this, we would say, I myself say. See, Jesus is claiming to have the authority to rightly interpret the Old Testament over the false teachings of the Pharisees. He is claiming authority. The third way is that it's important to note exactly what Jesus is contrasting his teaching to. He's not actually contrasting it to the law at all, but to what you have heard was said from others about the law. He's contrasting his teachings with that of the false teachings of the religious leaders of his day. In these six issues, the false teachers have limited, misinterpreted, added to, changed the words, changed the intent and the teachings of the law. Jesus is not placing his teaching in contrast to the Old Testament. Jesus never said, it is written, but I say to you. 
His contrast is clearly with these false religious teachers and what they are teaching about the law. Rather than dispensing and denying the law of God, it is clear from his teaching that he is actually giving a thorough exposition of the law. Now, it would be fitting for us at this moment to just stop and reflect. To kind of take a deep breath of humility. Perhaps we kind of look at the foolishness of these Pharisees and, oh, they totally missed the point. Perhaps, though, we need to raise the mirror of Jesus' authority in our lives. Where are the areas in our lives, in our teaching, where Jesus would say to us, You have said this, but I say to you. What spiritual platforms have we built teaching our own religion that Jesus would have to correct us on? Not a one of us in here is perfect theology. But are we humble enough to submit it all to the only one who has authority, to Jesus and his word? Are we humble enough to submit our personal preferences of church to the one true authority of Jesus Christ? As I've said this several times before, church isn't about you and what you want. Church isn't about me and what I want. Church is us together as a body in unity and in love, giving Jesus what he wants and what he alone deserves. The worship, the sacrifice, the service, the obedience. As his authority and his word rules, there will be less and less places in our lives and in our church where Jesus might say to us, well, you have said this, but I say to you. May each of us commit ourselves in humility to always put Jesus, his word, his teaching, his agenda, his purpose, his mission, first and foremost in our church and in our lives. Now let's look specifically at Jesus' teaching in our passage today and contrast what these false teachers taught versus what Jesus taught. Verse 21 says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. See, this is the insipid nature of false teaching. It almost always mixes in some truth. You probably recognize the first part of that statement from these false teachers. It's the sixth of the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20. You shall not murder. So what's wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with that. It's the next phrase that starts to put limits on the application and the intention of the commandment. In the effort to, to make the law something simpler to live out, they limit the command to just one strict interpretation, only murder. The only way to violate the law was to physically take someone's life. Therefore, if you haven't murdered anyone, you're good, right? You could look at that command and without any guilt and say to yourself, I have kept the law. And not only did they limit the law, but then they gutted the law of its real intention by saying that if someone murders, then they're liable to only to judgment. They lowered the morality of the law by making it a civil and judicial issue. Murder to God is much more than a civil or judicial issue. It's morally reprehensible. It's an affront to him because he has given each human his own worth. 
by making each one of us in his image. Genesis 9, 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. They limited and gutted the true intentions of the command to only certain situations and conditions. They had so reduced and confined the law that, in fact, it was no longer the law of God. You know, we love to substitute the outward for the inward. We love to say that all I have to do is do these right actions, but never truly evaluate our hearts, never truly evaluate our actions or our thoughts. Folks, Jesus will have none of that because that's not obedience to Jesus. That's why Jesus said in verse 20 that the righteousness of his followers must exceed that of the Pharisees. Limiting God's law to a mere list of outward actions might make one look righteous in other men's eyes. But in the only evaluation that counts, Jesus Christ, our actions are found wanting and shallow and fruitless and worthless. That's all they are, are outward See, Jesus doesn't just want outward obedience. He wants our hearts. He wants our motivations. He wants our agenda. He wants our attitude. He wants our purpose, our mission. Jesus said in verse 22, But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus teaches that the command just doesn't forbid the outward act, but also the thoughts and the attitudes and the words behind the action. 1 John 3.15 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. That's not John's thoughts. That's what Jesus taught John. Jesus taught that to be angry with your brother is to break the sixth commandment of you shall not murder. You see, Jesus judges our motives and our hearts as well as our actions. Then he takes it even further and talks about that anger, motivated insulting and that use of degrading words is also breaking the sixth commandment. Whoever insults his brother, some translations have the transliteration of the word raka there. Raka is an insult. It's like calling someone an idiot, a blockhead, a buffoon. It's an attack on one's mental mental ability. Then Jesus says, if you call someone you fool, the Greek word for fool is moron. It's not just insulting one's intelligence but it's also insulting their character. Now, Jesus isn't trying to make some kind of three-tiered response of the three levels of breaking the command with three descriptions of anger and insults and contempt. I think rather he's using this as repetition to heighten the impact of the true implication of the law. He is multiplying his examples to drive home the lesson. He wants his hearers to feel the weight of his message. Do you think you're far removed from being a murderer? Have you not hated? Have you not wished someone dead? Have you not been angry with someone? Have you ever insulted them? Have you ever wagged your finger in contempt of them? All such words, all such attitude, all such thoughts lie at the root of murder and makes one not a whit of difference 
morally speaking, from the actual murderer. One commentator wrote, The Old Testament law forbidding murder must not be thought adequately satisfied when no blood has been shed. Rather, the law points towards a fundamental problem, man's vilifying anger. Jesus, by his own authority, insists that the judgment thought to be reserved for the actual murderer, in reality, hangs over the wrathful, the spiteful, and the contemptuous. What man then stands uncondemned? What man then stands uncondemned? See, here we stand, you and me, each one of us, condemned as sinners, liable to the hell of fire by this one command. And there we run, either to the grace and Jesus to find his forgiveness, to come to Jesus as a sinner in need of a Savior, to come to the only one. Who can offer forgiveness and life and hope and restoration through his substitutionary death and powerful resurrection? Or we just stand in our own, our own self-righteousness, our own denial of the reality and the consequences of our sin? There's really only two roads in response. What we might often downplay is not very serious. Oh, that's just a bout of anger. That's just who I am. Well, that's a word of insult. It's sarcastic. Oh, that's just a, a you know, an, an attitude that, that, you know, I grew up that way. Jesus says, it's serious. It's as serious as murder. For they carry the same ultimate consequences, separation from God. The only answer to the sin in our hearts is the Savior in our hearts. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The only answer to the sin in our hearts, the Savior in our hearts. Have you believed in your heart? Jesus' death and resurrection took place giving you New life, today can be your day of salvation. Perhaps you're a Christian here today and you know, you've know you not taken your problem with anger seriously. You've downplayed its significance in your life. You've downplayed the damage that it's doing to others. According to a new study by the AAA Foundation for Traffic Safety, nearly 80% of U.S. drivers express significant anger, aggression, or road rage behind the wheel at least once in the past year. The most alarming findings suggest that approximately 8 million U.S. drivers, that's 8 million U.S. drivers, engage in extreme examples of road rage, including purposely ramming another vehicle, getting out of the car to confront another driver. Many drivers reported engaging in the following types of road rage. Purposely tailgating, 51%. Yelling at another driver, 47%. Honking to show your annoyance or anger, 45%. That percentage is much higher in this area. <laughs> Making angry gestures, 33%. That is also much higher in this area. 
Trying to block another vehicle from changing lanes, 24%. One of the study's researchers concluded, inconsiderate driving, bad traffic, and the daily stress of life can transform minor frustrations into dangerous road rage. Far too many are losing themselves in the heat of the moment and lashing out in ways that could turn deadly. Have you ever wondered what such alarming number of statistics how many of those cars have christian bumper stickers on the back of them how many of those have that little fish there on their back it's so easy for us to get comfortable with our anger instead of taking it seriously as jesus does Well, today's our day to awaken up, to awaken to the reality of Jesus teaching that ungodly expressed anger is a serious sin. That you need to take it as seriously as Jesus does. I can remember to go off script here. I can remember growing up in a home that was dominated by anger and the fear as a child in my room. Terrible things uh, that happened. Uh, anger is a sin that not only affects the one who's being angry, but affects all the others around. And it's devastating. It can last for generations. So what do we do about this? Are we going to be honest? Are we going to be real? The first steps in dealing with difficult sin issues in our lives is to acknowledge it to take responsibility for it, to seek forgiveness from the ones that you have hurt, and then pursue the help and the accountability that you need to change in Christ. We need to listen to the Holy Spirit. If anger is a regular issue in your life, if anger is a dominating sin in your life, if anger is hurting the loved ones in your life, If you're a clam-up person that likes to stuff it all down. If you're a blow-up person that just explodes. Listen to the Spirit. Acknowledge your anger. Take responsibility for it. Seek forgiveness. And then pursue the help and the change you need. Why did Jesus design church? What's this all about? Because we can't do this on our own. We desperately need each other's help to grow and to change through the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit. Please pursue the help that you need. Passage doesn't end there. The point Jesus is making in these verses isn't just that we need to take more seriously the sin of anger or the use of our words or attitudes. But he's also teaching that Just not doing the wrong thing is not the full intent of the command. The negative command doesn't just imply something we have to stop doing. Because Jesus so powerfully says it also requires a positive response. Instead of just not murdering someone with our hands, instead of just, you know, stopping the anger from our mouths and our hearts, we should also seek to have right relationships with everyone. That's what Jesus does. He applies a negative command to our hearts and flips it over to give us a positive response. The Apostle Paul captured this in Romans 10, 
8 through 10. Owe no one anything except love for each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and all the other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is a fulfilling of the law. The fulfillment of you shall not murder is love. Is proactively displaying the Christian characteristic of love. It's actually living out the Christian virtue of love that fulfills the commandment. See, love is the root motivation for our positive response. Jesus teaches in verses 23 through 26 that the positive response of love is to seek reconciliation. The first reconciliation illustration there is in verses 23 and 24. It says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The point here is the necessity of reconciliation. One commentator put a modern dress on this illustration. He said, if you're in church, in the middle of a service of worship, and you suddenly remember that your brother has a grievance against you, leave church at once and put it right. Do not wait till the service has ended. Seek out your brother and ask for his forgiveness. First go and then come. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your worship to God. It's a powerful truth. A right relationship with a brother in Christ is so important, so necessary, that it affects the acceptableness of our worship. Let that sink in for a moment. For worship to be the kind of worship that truly honors God, we must make our reconciled relationships seriously. God takes it seriously. Murder is serious. Anger and insults and contempt, serious. Reconciled relationships, serious. And guys, these aren't words from, you know, some advice Christian book. These are the words of Jesus. From the Bible. If you need to seek reconciliation, go to the person, seek reconciliation, and ask for forgiveness. If you need to be reconciled too, then be prepared to freely and willingly offer your forgiveness. Because Jesus Christ has forgiven you. This is how true Christians act to one another. The next reconciliation illustration says to do it fast. Shows the urgency of reconciliation. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. There's an urgency to reconciliation. If not done timely, the consequences of lingering wound only makes everything much harder. That's the impetus of Ephesians 4.26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. The motivation is to reconcile your relationship on the same day as the offense. That's how urgent the Bible describes it. That's how serious Jesus takes reconciliation between believers. Perhaps today you need to wake up to the necessity 
and the urgency of reconciliation. If there's a broken relationship in your life, don't delay. The scripture says, take it seriously. The Apostle Paul gives us great teaching on this in Romans 12:18, where he says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We are not responsible for the other person's response. And we're not allowed to back out of our part and our responsibility because we suspect the other person's response is not going to be what we would like. We are to be proactive in our brotherly love. And as far as it depends on us, live peaceably with all. We'll use John R.W. Stott's conclusion to his teaching on this passage as our conclusion. Listen to these words. How seldom do we heed Christ's call for immediacy of action? If murder is a horrible crime, malicious anger and insults are horrible too. And so is every deed, word, look, or thought by which we hurt or offend a fellow human being. We need to be more sensitive to these evils. Must never allow an estrangement to remain, still less to grow. We must not delay to put it right. We must not even allow the sun to set on our anger. But immediately, as soon as we are conscious of a broken relationship, we must take the initiative to mend it, to apologize for the grievance we have caused, to pay the debt we have left unpaid, to make amends. And these practical instructions Jesus drew from the sixth commandment and its logical implications. If we want to avoid committing murder in God's sight, we must take every possible positive step to live in peace and to love those around us. So as we go to communion, as we spend this time of evaluation, heed the word of God and allow its truth to guide you. Let's pray. Father, in many ways, through your spirit and through your word, you're challenging each one of us in our walks and our lives and where we are. We don't want to just come to church today. We want to interact with you today. We want to leave here thinking and pondering your truth, applying it to our lives and then having a new passion, a new devotion to living it out. So energize us. Our thoughts convict us from your word. Help us to heed the truth of what Jesus has taught us today. In Jesus' name, amen.